This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to The Bunker, your need to know on news and politics five days a week. I'm Ros Taylor. You may think, if you're lucky, that you've got a decent amount of control over your life. You probably chose where to live, who to partner up with, what kind of job to do. You chose to listen to The Bunker right now, for which many thanks. But Brian Class is here to tell you that your whole existence is the result of an extraordinary fluke. And not only that, but when you think you have free will, you're probably deceiving yourself. On the upside, he also wants to tell you why all that can be a good thing. Brian, welcome back to The Bunker. Uh, it's, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. You're an associate professor at University College London, and you've spent your career working in the social sciences, which are all about cause and effect. Yet your new book, Fluke, is in part an attack on our assumption that we can alter the course of events. It starts with the dinosaurs, doesn't it? Yeah. So, you know, I think I've, I describe myself in the book as a disillusioned social scientist. And I think it's because we have this sort of neat and tidy, what I call storybook reality of how cause and effect works. And the more you peer at history or at the details of our own lives, those things fall apart. And the, the, the dinosaurs example is, a, is an interesting one because all of humanity is basically derived from a cosmic accident where a little fluctuation in the Oort cloud in the distant reaches of space flings this space rock at the earth hits in exactly the right place to cause the maximum possible damage, uh, which it did, and wipes out the dinosaurs, giving rise to mammals as the dominant life form on the planet eventually, and to the origin story of humans. And if that asteroid had been delayed by a second, a minute, uh, we, we none of us would exist. There are so many areas where when you look at them, the model says, oh, here's five or six variables that cause this outcome. The messiness, the complexity of reality actually pivots on a lot of arbitrary and accidental things that could have turned out differently. And that's the thing that I sort of uh, wanted to address in, in writing this book. Another example you give is that the thousands of people who died when an atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima in 1945 would have lived but for an extraordinary coincidence. Tell us about that. Yeah, so the opening of the book is this story uh, that begins with a vacation that a couple takes in 1926 to Kyoto, Japan. So Mr. and Mrs. H.L. Stimson, they go to Japan, they fall in love with Kyoto. You know, we have that experience, you go on vacation and it's a wonderful city and you get a soft spot for it. Well, their soft spot turned out to be consequential because 19 years later, the husband in the couple, Henry Stimson, was America's Secretary of War. And he was overseeing the decision of where to drop the atomic bomb. And the target committee, which is largely composed of generals and so on, says Kyoto is the number one pick. So he springs to action and twice meets with President Truman to get him to take it off the list. And so the first bomb ends up in Hiroshima instead because uh, Stimson's quote unquote pet city, uh, he didn't want to see it incinerated. The second bomb was supposed to go to Kokura. And when the bomber arrived over Kokura, there's a brief segment of cloud cover. They don't have visual confirmation of the target. So they move on to their secondary target, which is Nagasaki. So you have a couple hundred thousand people living or dying in two cities one from a two-decade-old vacation and one from a brief cloud. And I, you know, I think the point here is that you know, if you were trying to model where are they going to drop the atomic bomb, 
The vacation histories of various U.S. government officials would not be on your list of variables to include, and yet it was the most important at the time. And so I think this is not unusual. This is actually, I think, how the world works, and we pretend otherwise because it's very comforting to imagine a linear relationship between cause and effect with one X causing one Y. And you write about how scientists want to find cause and effect, and that that desire leads them to sometimes manipulate results. How do they do that? Tell us a bit about it. Yeah, so there's there's a thing called publication bias. Uh, and publication bias warps the social sciences in particular. And the reason why it's so much of a problem is because the professional uh, ambitions of any individual scientist or social scientist are tied to their publications. Now, that means that if you toil for two or three years working on some data analysis, and ultimately you find a null result, which is to say you found no effect, positive or negative, in your in your study, well, very often it's difficult to get that published. So this creates an incentive to generate findings that are either positive or negative. Now, the problem is that this is exacerbated by something called the file drawer problem. The file drawer problem is if you do get a null result, no result, you will simply not publish it. You'll stick it in the file drawer and say, oh, well, that was a waste of time. Now, the problem is if, if this happens 20 times, so if 20 people do the same study and 19 of them find nothing, then, then nothing is probably the actual real answer, right? There's probably no relationship between two variables. However, if just by random accident, one person happens to find something because they do the study in a slightly weird way, that's the one that will get published. So it warps our understanding of the world. There's a lot of stuff in social science that I think creates bias. And I have a chapter in the book called The Emperor's New Equations about poor quantitative social science research. And I, you know, it's not going to make me many friends on the conference circuit, but it is, it is the kind of stuff that I think social science really has to grapple with because the way we project certainty and models that have straightforward causes and effects onto the world, I think really makes us make decisions poorly because we imagine we can control the world. And I think about how, you know, the 21st century is basically a series of calamities that have defined our politics. I mean, you look back, it's, you know, 9-11, the war in Iraq, the financial crisis, the Arab Spring, the rise of Trump, Brexit. Um, Then you have the pandemic, you have the wars in Ukraine and Gaza. I mean, these are unforeseen events that have reshaped everything economically and politically in our lives. And I think this is the kind of stuff where, uh, you know, this is because we have this very neat and tidy funhouse mirror version of reality that's reflected back at us in modeling that gives us the illusion of control and causes us to be hubristic in how we navigate uncertainty. And I think that's a very big problem that social science needs to grapple with. And we know this is happening because when social scientists try to repeat other people's experiments, they often find they can't replicate the results, don't they? Yeah, this is the thing. You know, I think this study that I'm trying to popularize in this book, because it did not get as much attention as I think it should, the more well-known one is the replication crisis. And this is this originated in, in psychology and so on, where people would repeat an experiment and they would find either no result or a different result. The study that I cite that really, really rocks the foundation of, of social science is called the Universe of Uncertainty paper. And what's amazing about this is they're trying to look at how levels of immigration affect people's viewpoints on their support for social service provision. So the hypothesis might be, okay, as more immigrants come into your community, you become stingier with how much you want public services to spend, okay? So they give these 76 different research teams the same exact data and ask them to answer the same exact question. Now, you would hope that there would be some sort of convergence in the findings. What they found was that about half of the research teams found nothing, no relationship. A quarter of them found a positive relationship and a quarter of them found a negative relationship. It was basically a bell curve. Now, this is seriously problematic because there was no bias. There was no one trying to manipulate the data. They were all trying to answer the question in good faith. 
And they couldn't really explain it. They don't know why this happened. But in the real world, there's not 76 research teams that answer questions. There's just one. And they pick their own data. There's serious questions about the level of certainty we can put in social science findings. And I think this should uh, usher in a second crisis of confidence. The replication crisis was the first one. I think this is the second one that, that we need to really grapple with as a discipline. That is pretty major. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I want to talk about free will because it's so central to how we think about society and how we think about our own potential as human beings. It's, you know, ingrained in us that we have some at least power to alter our lives and our life course. Does a criminal have free will? I, so I'll answer this question in two ways, which is to say my answer first off is no, right? But I don't believe any of us have free will. So that answers the question, right? But I'll explain why I say that in a second. I think there's two ways of thinking about this question about agency and our level of control. I think there is a huge amount of things that we do not control, that we pretend we control for social convenience. For example, uh, I didn't control where I was born. I didn't control when I was born. I didn't control who my parents were. I can't control my personality. I can't control how my brain is structured, right? All of those things are probably the most major factors in my life trajectory. And I had no say in any of them, right? Additionally, in the opening chapter of the book, I tell the story of this, uh, this woman in Wisconsin in 1905 who has a mental breakdown and this, this tragic story where she's got four young children and she has a mental breakdown and she murders her four children and takes her own life and her husband comes home to find the whole family dead. And uh, it's, in, it's in the opening chapter of my book because it's my great-grandfather's first wife who killed her whole family in 1905 and he remarried to my great-grandmother and that's the reason I exist, right? It's the reason you're hearing my voice. Like if there wasn't a 119-year-old mass murder, we wouldn't be sitting here talking. Now, that was totally out of my control. And it was something I was not only un powerless to change, but it was also something I wasn't aware of until my mid-20s when my, my dad told me about it. So I think that's the first thing is that there's a load of stuff in our lives that we do not control, that we pretend, oh, it's just, if you work hard, you'll be fine, okay? The second question is more about the origins of our behavior. And this is more of a philosophical question than one that's actually like about how you live your life. I mean, whether I have free will or not, I still try to be a good person, right? But the origins of my behavior, I do not think I control. And the reason I think that is because I don't believe that there actually is a distinction between my mind and my brain. I think it's, it's a linguistic convention we use to refer to the exact same thing. <laughs> and of course, my experiences, uh, my desires, my beliefs, all those things are physically encoded in my brain, but I can't control my brain. I don't think there's a, a separate, you know, in the past, there was a sort of idea of like a homunculus in your, in your head that sort of controlled everything. And we like to think of, you know, where am I? Well, a lot of people think I'm behind my eyes. Well, that's just because I see the world through my eyes. I think my entire body is me, right, in, in a scientific sense. But that doesn't necessarily change the way that I think about agency because I still make decisions. I just don't believe that I have independent causal control separate from my brain. And that's where I think I don't have free will, right? Because I can't control the physical reactions inside my brain. Now, when it comes to the criminal idea, this is one that actually does have implications for how we arrange society. 
There's a neuroscientist, Sam Harris, who I, I disagree with a huge amount of stuff that he says, but he has a very nice quote about this question where he says, you know, even if criminals don't have free will, we may still have to imprison certain people, even if they don't have choice in the matter. It's sort of scripted by their minds or their brains because we would imprison hurricanes if we could, right? What, what does have interesting implications on the free will debate is whether we have a, a focus on criminal justice that's tied to retribution and punishment or to rehabilitation. And, and for someone like me who doesn't believe in free will, I think all criminal justice should be tied to basically pragmatic deterrence and rehabilitation and nothing else. The, the, the idea of punishing someone for the sake of punishment to someone who believes that free will is an illusion is nonsensical. There's an example, I won't go into details, but he's a, a person who kills a whole bunch of people who has a, turns out to have a brain tumor. And my point of view is, why is unhealthy tissue in my brain any different from healthy tissue in my brain? Both of them I can't control. <laughs> so we might as well think of the the causal chain of our actions as, as something we can't actually manipulate ourselves. I mean, that too is a profoundly radical idea of the entire way we organize society. Yes. It's unsettling because it has ramifications for how we think about human agency. And I can see how some people would resist this kind of determinism because it's not just a world without God, you know, the Enlightenment, if you like, but it's a world in which we have to accept the limits of science to shape our lives, which I don't think many of us are ready to do. Is the human race remotely ready to do that? Well, I think there's questions about how people deal with this. I mean, you know, one of the things that um, that people, when they think about this problem, get really depressed about is they start to think, well, you know, what is what is the meaning of my existence if, if I can't control my my brain and so on? I, it doesn't bother me nearly as much as as some people I've talked to about this. And part of the reason for that is because the flip side of this is that in a deterministic worldview, which is one that I hold, if I'm trying to understand the origins of my behavior, it's all caused in this unbroken chain of causes and effects. I mean, the reason I exist is partly derived from this mass murder in Wisconsin. The reason I am the way I am is partly derived from every experience in my life, my genetics, the way my brain chemistry works, along with memories and upbringing and all these sorts of things. Now, that has created me, and maybe I don't have independent causal control over my actions. But the flip side of this is that the third part of the subtitle of, of the book is why everything we do matters. And I'm not trying to make some like grand self-help phrase. I, I mean that literally. I, what I'm saying is that every single thing that I do has ripple effects that are unforeseen. They reshape the future. And that empowers me in a way where even if I don't have independent causal control, my life has meaning because I am constantly reshaping the future. And, and, and people find this to be a vague idea or you know, it's quite abstract. The, the, the one where I think it's impossible to argue with this mentality is the moment a child is conceived, for example, right? It has to be exactly that moment for that person to be born. If it's a microsecond difference, a different person comes into the world. And then of course the world is going to be different because of that. The point that I'm making here is that Okay, let's say I don't have control over that. I think it's really cool to me that there's this unbroken chain of causes and effects that in my mentality goes back to the Big Bang that we're part of. And the, the way I describe it in Fluke is I say, you know, you have this unbroken thread of our lives. And if you were to pull out any single thread, the entire tapestry will change the image. You can't change one thread without changing the overall structure. And that's the way the world works scientifically. So you know, you lose a little bit of control. Um, but the, the way I describe it in the book is I say we control nothing, but we influence everything. And to me, that's actually more uplifting than a world in which I have control, but actually my life, my life doesn't actually matter that much. There's potentially an uglier side to this kind of determinism, mm. which has ramifications of how we think about human agency. 
And I can see why some people would resist this on the on the grounds of diminishing responsibility, not just because they want to punish a criminal um, who's done something bad, but thinking more widely about surely the British were responsible for enabling the slave trade, for mm. example. What was what was fluky about that? Well, I don't think that you let people off the hook simply because the causal origin of our behavior is derived from our physical bodies, right? I mean, that's the, the way I see this is that it doesn't actually affect things that much except for what the purpose of punishment is. So when you think about something like historic atrocities, you still need to punish people for it in the sense of deterring future abuses. You still need to have justice done because people had real harm. The point is, I think the implications of these questions are ones in which the science is increasingly, I think, agreeing with what I'm saying. But more to the point, we can make a just society that doesn't punish people for things that were totally out of their control. And I think there's also this aspect where, you know, the American dream, which I was brought up with, it's a mentality where basically people are to blame for their failures. You know, if you just want to be rich, why don't you work harder? I mean, it's a world that basically writes out all of the things that we know are social factors where, you know, people who are on the political left, for example, should, I think, in some ways embrace this mentality because it helps you explain how social factors and genetic factors that are out of people's control actually do have a, an impact on life chances. And therefore, we, we should design societies in which those things are the least uh, you know, punitive to people who didn't have much of a choice and being born into a broken family with no support and abuse. The society should support those people because it's not their fault. And I think that's the, that's the, the radical re-engineering that I think a political center-left or leftist person can, can embrace even in a world that has uh, less room for free will. But isn't it possible that the idea that we can control what goes on in our own bodies, which you see people like the Daily Mail promoting, for example, comes from this sense that society isn't very good at supporting us when things go wrong, that we need to fall back on our resources as far as we possibly can in order to survive in a society like this. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the stuff where, you know, the, the, the philosophical debate ends up in, in social policy. And I think for people who have a viewpoint that you know, very often people on the political left are worried about the idea of determinism because they say, as you said previously, this lets injustice off the hook. The flip side of that is if you believe that everyone dictates their own future, which the political right often says, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, then you basically design a society where things that are out of your control end up having massive effects on your social trajectory and your, and your support. I mean, if you believe that poor people could just work a little harder and they'll be fine, right? And they've made a decision consciously separate from all the other factors in their body, separate from all the other social factors they face, then you have a society where those people deserve to not have social support because the reason they are poor is because they have decided not to work hard, right? The thing that's interesting about this idea to me is that it actually doesn't fit neatly in the right or the left. There's aspects that will bother the right and there's aspects that will bother the, the, the left. The question I'm interested in is, is scientifically, if this is the case, what do we do with it? And I think that what we're getting to a point where there is a there's a growing consensus in scientific literature that that free will does not make sense as a as a scientific fact about how our brains operate. And I think this will be a question for the 21st century. Is like let's imagine whether you agree with me. Like I'm sure many listeners are just like you know this guy's an idiot. That's fine. But if you were to imagine that science definitively proves that free will is an illusion, what would that mean for our societies? And I think that's a debate that's worth having. It would also potentially mean that we could manipulate ourselves physically to such an extent that it would be possible to change 
to change how we behave, I suppose, which is another way of thinking about it. Well, and that 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 is this this is where you get into the deep philosophy stuff, right? I mean, it's like <laughs> you know, no, I mean, but it's <laughs> yeah. but it's you know, can can you edit out people's uh, behavior, and should we do that? I mean, this is you know, genetic engineering and so on. These are going to be questions that actually become scientifically feasible in the not so distant future, and there are going to be issues that need significant regulation. I think. Hello, I'm Ross Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now?, the politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Brian, what's the upside if we can accept the randomness of existence? Because I personally have, have trouble with it. Uh, you know, I, I, logically, I absolutely accept your point of view. In, in practice, I struggle with it. I actually love it. I mean, I, I, you know, it's funny. I think part of this is I have to accept it because I am an accident. And I, I feel like I'm an accident in so many ways. So, you know, there, there's some stuff. I, I talk a lot in the book about evolutionary biology and the origin of, of humans. And one of my favorite factoids is that um, the, the origin of live births in mammals, according to modern science, is that a single shrew-like creature got infected by a retrovirus 100 million years ago, which gave rise to placenta and, and gave rise to the evolution of live births. And if that didn't happen, hum humans wouldn't exist, right? So, so I, you know, I think that there's a pretty big degree of that for all of us. But for me as well, I feel like a cosmic accident. Like even my dog, right? I'm, like, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a very dog-obsessed person. My border collie is directly derived from a single dog named Old Hemp that was a border collie on the Scottish-English border that was very good at herding sheep. And the breed was locked in by a Scottish court case called the Great Collie Ear Trial, which determined how ears of collies should, should exist. All this is so random and arbitrary, but it's the reason why my dog Zorro is the way he is. I love him. But like, you know, if there wasn't this weird Scottish court case and there wasn't this one dog called Old Hemp... It's just the way the world is. <laughs> I also find there's something sort of cool about uh, just the unbelievable complexity and beauty of a world where small changes can have really big impacts. We just don't understand so much of this stuff. It's so bizarre. I, like, I don't know. I, there's, there's a great Vonnegut quote that I put in Fluke where he says something, I'm paraphrasing, but he says something to the effect of the purpose of a human life, no matter who's controlling it, is just to love whoever's around to be loved. And like, maybe I'm a total accident. I still like hanging out with people. And I'm just like part of this weird existence where I am reshaping the future in what I do. I'm affecting the brains of people who are listening to this, which is amazing. And uh, and I don't know, that's sort of, that's enough for me. Thanks so much, Brian. Thanks for having me on the show. It was lovely to chat. Fluke, Chance, Chaos and Why Everything We Do Matters is published by Hachette. And if you liked this episode, don't forget that you can back us on Patreon for the fairly small sum of £3 a month. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Roz Taylor, and thanks for listening. The Bunker was written and presented by Roz Taylor and produced by Eliza Davis Beer. Audio production is from me, Robin Leeburn, and our music's by Kenny Dickinson. Managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.